today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Lisa Hillenbrand. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. We're going to be talking uh, a little bit later about Lisa's new book called Stragility, and uh, it's been a a, a very interesting read, and I think some of you are actually going to be terribly interested in reading it. But before we get started, I want to uh, let people know a couple of things about what's happening over here at Sandler. Uh, This week, I'm sorry, next week, uh, on the 13th, we have a business leaders workshop from 11.30 to 2. If you're interested in that, you can call us at uh, 753-9400, extension 2, to make a reservation. Uh, the following week, we have the, the Sandler Boot Camp. That's an eight-hour program on Wednesday the 20th, running from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and again, if you wanted to make a reservation for that, 513-753-9400, extension 2, and you can make a reservation for that program. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of an explanation of something new here at Sandler called uh, Connect and Sell. Uh, some of you who have been clients have heard me talk for years about touching 100% of your desirable opportunities as a requirement for marketing or sales. And one of the methods of reaching 100% of the clients or prospects was making cold calls. Uh, more efficient than, than walking into buildings because that takes more time. But at Sandler, with our connecting and call system, we've had about a 300% increase in efficiency in making telephone calls by harnessing the power of a predictive dialing system to a series of phone banks where you can be making four, seven, ten simultaneous outbound calls. And when you get the contact on the phone, the phone bank operator connects the live person to you and you have your conversation. If it goes to a voicemail, the system will leave in an automated fashion, leave the same voicemail that you recorded once. So it makes you terribly more efficient. Uh, personally, when I've used the system, uh, I've seen in a half hour about 75 dials and about seven conversations, and about 20 voicemail messages left, which is much more efficient than I can do with my own CRM. So uh, inside, we've switched to it, and if anyone wants uh, further information about it, get a hold of me at the office at 513-753-9400, and we'll take you through an example of what it can do for you. But we've seen upwards of 300% improvement in productivity 
or efficiency from salespeople by using this, I'm going to call it a semi-automated system. So salespeople no longer have to dial the phone. Instead, they just talk to prospects or suspects. Uh, let me tell everyone a little bit about Lisa. Uh, Lisa uh, founded her own company, Lisa Hillenbrand and Associates. Uh, she served as global marketing director at Procter & Gamble. She specialized in marketing strategy and organizational change, uh, interventions that uh, return brands to growth and, and led teams that re-engineered Procter & Gamble's company-wide brand-building approach. And that's a real big mouthful. That is. Procter & Gamble has been known as a brand-building company. We are. Uh, Lisa's delivered keynote addresses for the AMA, American Marketing Association, Marketing Science Institute, the Thomas Edison Foundation, and has consulted and led top-rated workshops for Google, Facebook, and many others. Uh, so, Lisa, how long ago did you decide that you were going to write this book, Stragility? Stragility came about a couple of years ago. My co-author, Ellen Oster, and I had been working together for a number of years, both at P&G and elsewhere at a number of companies. And what we noticed is that any change an organization wanted to do, people were struggling, and so often change failed. And we realized that we had we were starting to develop a roadmap to help people uh, increase their odds of successful organization change. So a couple of years ago, we started writing the book, and we did it very much following the principles in the book. We did it collaboratively. We did it through week-long immersion sessions where we worked back and forth. We put in a lot of kind of change fitness things. We took frequent breaks and and um, built on each other's ideas. And, and the result was the book that came out just this week. Mm -hmm. Was there a single event that made you decide to write the book? You know, I don't think there was an event, but there certainly was a frustration watching how hard it was for people, watching the burnout in organizations, watching people confused, watching change leaders not get promoted, struggle because their changes weren't successful. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you read the book, uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Mm -hmm. That was on the bestseller list for about 10 years uh, with a very simple concept. Uh, you guys invited, invented a new word, stragility. Uh, could you tell our listeners what the word means? Sure. The word is made up, and it's a combination of strategy and agility, and it came about when my co-author was typing it, it, strategic agility into search in Google, and her fingers flew, through, threw up, flew across the keyboard and stragility came out. And we liked the notion of strategic agility because for any, any company, large or small, you need to understand what strategic course you're on. You need to have a lot of agility to course correct and move as circumstances change internally and externally. And the third element of stragility is what we call people-powered change, and it's really the most important, which is engaging people in change. Change, after all, is ultimately one person changing and another person and another person as people adapt new habits, and it's critical to organizations as they're trying to achieve their missions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, for those listeners who've looked at the cover of the book, the thing that looks like uh, Scribble Scrabble <laughs> above the words Stragility. Stragility. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tongue twister. Uh -huh. uh, why don't you tell our listeners 
what it means. Sure, there's a giant squiggle, and it goes into a cursive stragility that looks very smooth. And the metaphor behind that is organizational chaos that we all operate in. Whether you're in a mom and pop or whether you're in a Fortune 50 company, there is so much change. We're we have mountains of email. We have one. We don't have one change. We have changes happening in our business life, changes happening in our personal life, and sorting through all that. And the, the notion behind the metaphor is, by following proven success principles, you can make it a lot smoother and cut through the chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of chaos with emails. People getting uh, 50 to 350 well, emails right? a day, right. and uh, most of them are. And, Telemarketer calls, right? <laughs> yeah, I probably get uh, at least uh, two or three telemarketer calls to change my gas and mm-hmm. uh, electricity vendor every uh, every week, uh, even though we're under contract with someone. You know, yeah, yep. these things just take take time to deal with, and uh, being efficient uh, is is what I've taught our attempt to teach our people in sales and sales management uh, things like how to increase sales 30% while reducing the headcount in the sales department by 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in your uh, design of stragility, uh, what areas of a company would this be most impactful for? Sure. This would apply to any level person who is involved in change, whether they are on the front line, whether they're a mid-level manager, or whether they're CEO. And this is really a practitioner-oriented book that gives very practical tips and diagnostic tools and ways to get started from wherever you are to move whatever initiative you have forward. It's designed to be very skimmable, full of good case studies. Uh, You can pick up a chapter, put it down, pick up another chapter. So you can literally pick it up, spend a half an hour, and you'll have some, some good advice to apply to whatever challenge you're working. So this book is uh, written in a a format that that I call segregatable, that you could pick up any section and use it? Absolutely. And what we have is each chapter has diagnostic questions. And so if you, for example, if you're worried that your organization is not um, inspiring and engaging people, we have a list of questions. For example, do people understand the business case? Are we using mantras and stories? Are we facilitating the team's ability to drill up down on specifics? So so we have questions. You can rate yourself on those questions, and then you know where to start. Now, what I like when I read it, uh, Lisa, is not only does it have a tool, in many cases it has three or four tools. Many tools, and these are from... Um, in 20, 30 years of working with companies and seeing what works, and it means that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, and you can you can harness the the success principles that other people have learned for your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us an example of a, of a problem that you ran into when you were at P and G of uh, people resisting change? Well, 
not specific to PNG, but I can talk about a uh, big client that my co-author Ellen Oster and I worked with, mm-hmm. where the issue was that we were combining uh, four departments that had a history of not working well together and mistrust. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was almost generational. It was it was just a lot of friction. And what we found is we really needed to focus first on the relationship, first on people understanding each other. And we spent an entire week at an offsite where what we did is we got to know each other. We developed a common mission and purpose that we were all excited about. We developed an action plan. But half the time was spent on really understanding the people, the work of the different groups, what we could do together. And the great news is that group um, identified millions of dollars worth of opportunities, came out of that week, made those opportunities happen, and it really set a new course. Mm-hmm. Uh, in larger companies, uh, doing an offsite for a day or a few weeks makes a, a lot of sense because that's a, a regular part of the routine and scheduled and budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a smaller company, you know, let's say a less than $10 million a year company, uh, how would they do the same thing? You know, big or small, you can do that. There is an island in uh, Denmark called Samco. Samso, I'm sorry. And Samso, there was a guy um, named Soren Hermansen whose job it was to convert that island to 100% renewable energy. Mm. His team was himself and his wife, who was probably the pro bono half of the team. So here's two people and an island. And well, how many other people were there on the island? Well, there were a lot. There were thousands of people on okay. the island. And he had this mission of creating a creating 100% renewable energy island. And he did what he called Beer and Coffee Connects. And the, they are the equivalent of doing an offsite, if you will. He had... He discovered that many people were suspicious that this was a an airy, family, fairy, hippie kind of project from Copenhagen, mm-hmm. and they wanted to see real benefits of the change. So, for example, he talked to plumbers, and plumbers said, well, wait a minute. If uh, you take away a lot of our business, how are we going to get income? And what the plumbers discovered is that the, the new energy systems required heat pumps, and the heat pumps became a source of revenue for him. For the for the plumbers, the plumbers they would the, love it. The farmers, it turns out, elephant grass is a new crop that's used as biomass for fuel, mm-hmm. and so the farmers had something to do. And for residents, um, for residents of the island, they said, "Well, this is going to cost a lot of money." And they worked on a program of tax benefits and incentives to help homeowners. And even the local golf course got into the act, where they hired sheep to share the greens, and they gave. Them Everybody little divot things to, to, to fix the divots on mm-hmm. the golf carts. And so it was a wonderful example of going off-site in a small scale, the beer and coffee diplomacy, the kinds of work that people needed, needed to do one-on-one to, to orchestrate the change. Good. We're going to be back uh, after these commercial breaks. If you have a uh, question for Lisa, she has agreed to uh, take calls. Uh, the call-in number is going to be 646-595-4916. We'll be able to uh, screen your calls during the commercial breaks. And let's hear a couple of Sandler commercials. This is a message is a for message professional, professional salespeople. It's an unusual message. I'm going to tell you that our product is expensive and difficult. It takes effort to use, and it's not for everyone. We provide difficult but effective sales training. It's the kind of training... Familiar to champion athletes, it builds winners in the world of business. 
We don't promise quick fixes or color brochures, only hard work that will teach you how to sell effectively even when your price is higher. If you're tired of hearing, I want to think it over. If you're finally ready to invest in yourself and your sales career and learn how to close more business faster, call me, Mike Roth, 513-646-6523, and we'll invite you to our next Lunch and Learn Sales Discovery Workshop, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is, their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Lisa Hillenbrand who wrote a book called Stragility. Uh, Lisa, uh, the world keeps changing. It's, it never stays the same. Uh, and companies need to change and keep up. Uh, yet over 70% of the efforts to make changes in companies, sales forces fail, fail to achieve the goals intended. Uh, why is that and what can people do? Mm-hmm. We've seen four common issues that people trip on. One is to lock and load on strategy. As you say, strategy needs to be flexible and adaptable because circumstances change. Another is people run, there's no subject more scary than politics, and people feel like they ought to just ignore them. It's a minefield. It's a volcano ready to explode. Another one is we get so busy and people think it'll be easier to just tell people what to do. They don't need to understand why we're changing. And so that's kind of tell and sell. And the final one is change fatigue. We forget it's not just our change. There's change everywhere. And you end up, when you end up seeing in your organization deer in the headlight looks, it suggests that people are just plain burnt out. And what we did is we took those four areas that people stumble with and created um, kind of four best practices or four skills. So instead of locking and loading, sensing and shifting on strategy to adapt to the environment. So what are the four skills that so, people need to develop? So sense and shift is one. Embracing our inner politician, really embracing political skills and using those to our advantage. Rather than telling and selling, inspiring and engaging. And finally, cultivating change fitness in yourself and in your organization. So those are the four skills. Change fitness. Change fitness. Uh, that's almost a buzzword in Sandler, meaning that no one else knows what it means unless they read your book. So maybe you can tell people what change fitness means. I know sure. what fitness is. Go to the gym six days a week. <laughs> sure. This is really about it's using the gym analogy to keep yourself and your organization physically fit. And it may surprise you, but our number one piece of advice here is to change less and accomplish more. Often, 
we do so many things. We have a whole slew of good, adequate, worthy projects, but we're so busy doing those projects that the really critical ones don't get done. A fantastic example of really prioritizing and doing less is when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, and he listened to hundreds of presentations about hundreds of projects, and finally he stood up and he said, I can't stand this anymore. And what he essentially said is, we need two great products. We need a great Um, desktop computer that became the Mac, and we need what became the iPhone. And if you think about it, that there... Did he say iPhone, really? He did not, no. He he said He he talked about a a portable. No, he was talking about some kind of a portable device that Mm -hmm. then became the iPhone. But if a company like Apple can prioritize two big things, the rest of us with our hundreds of priorities can cut cut a lot of things. So once you've done that and you're really working on mission-critical stuff, we advocate things like running water through the place, which just means testing and learning. Uh, for example, there were, there were two banks. There's one big bank who decided to cut over to a new system, and they didn't practice. They did it over a weekend. Monday morning, it was chaos. Customers couldn't get into their accounts. Features weren't working. Bank number two prototyped tried it out, did it on the three-day weekend, and that bank was successful. So so really testing, learning, validating before you do it. And then once you've done those things, the other pieces are about your personal energy. As a leader particularly, your energy is contagious. People need to feel like we're, we're moving in a good direction, like you have the confidence and you're behind it. And you need to build in your recovery just like an athlete does, taking micro, micro breaks, taking vacations, food, rest, de-stressing. Helping your people remove headbangers, the things that are frustrating folks. And then finally, learning from all of your efforts so that you um, don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were uh, at P&G, uh, how many people did you lead in your organization? Uh, well, I was, in, I was in many different roles. Mm-hmm. In one role, it was a, a learning organization for like 5,000 people. I have done everything from having no direct reports to having a group of 5,000 people where we were figuring out how to develop best practices. For I, those I'd practices. like to ask our guests to, if they could give other leaders uh, just one leadership tip. What would okay. that be? You know, I would say go slow to go fast. By that I mean really take time with people. What leaders tend to do is they get in, they're they're justifiably impatient for change, and they they ignore the people dynamics. And so thinking about how do we enroll people, how do we understand what's in it for them, not just the big picture, not just talking financial numbers, but really understanding people. So that would be the first uh, and the biggest tip. Go slow to go fast Mm -hmm. and really do it right. That's good. Uh, again, if you have a question for Lisa, the call-in number is uh, 646-595-4916. We'll be able to screen the calls during the next commercial break. Uh, many times in, in organizations, I know I train sales organizations, and in sales organizations, when they bring in a change, a, a new topic, uh, many of the old-timers treat it as uh, the the change du jour, and this too shall pass. Um, so the change, while it's announced, attempted to be implemented, never goes anyplace, and six months later, 
everyone is back to the way the way they were. Uh, what's the the best way to introduce change so that it's not change du jour? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is people really need to understand why a change is necessary. And they need to then understand what does that mean for my job? What specifically do I need to do differently? And then they need to have skin in the game. They need to have a sense of ownership and common mission. Um, so, for example, there was a, a port that we call Global Port who was losing business to a lot of ports because they offered similar benefits. And they decided that what they could do is, uh, is be the port that was the most hassle-free. And they created a mantra called smooth sailing. And it, it encapsulated what they That's were trying slogan. to do. But then they went department by department and had face-to-face meetings. That's the people part of this mm-hmm. change. Face-to-face meetings saying, okay, look logistics department, how could we do this? And they did the logical things like streamlining the paperwork. They also came up with great stuff like they now have a helicopter that takes the paperwork out to the ship as it's coming into port Mm. and all your paperwork is done before you even dock because whether you're a cruise ship or whether you're a commercial ship, that turnaround time is really important. So translating the change to something tangible that people can do. The parking lot attendant, they were presenting this, and the parking lot attendant said, well, hey, that's neat. I can be the greeter. I can be the first person they see on their vacation. And he suggested being a greeter. He suggested getting carts out because there are kids and car seats and paraphernalia coming for all the like Disney-type cruise lines. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful example of how you get people behind the change. They understand the big picture, in this case, smooth sailing, but they also understand what they need to do differently and are empowered to think of ideas like this parking lot attendant to think of ideas for how he can make the experience from the parking lot to the front door more smooth sailing. Yeah, that's really great. Um, Sometimes politics slows down changes, uh, especially if people higher in the organization uh, kind of dig in their heels and uh, attempt to stop leaders who are in favor of change or or professing to change. Uh, What should a leader do when they they run into the the politics in the organization? Politics is a fancy word for people and people's needs. And people have points of view because they have self-interest. There are groups that stand to win something, stand to lose something. So the first piece of advice I'd have is to map the political landscape. Understand who are the people who are likely to be promoters, sponsors, really gung-ho. Who are the people who are kind of on the fence? And finally, who are the skeptics? Mm -hmm. And really meet with them. Figure out who the influencers are in those groups. There's always a few people who are the go-to people, either because of official authority or often just because they're people who are smart and know their stuff. And maybe surprisingly, we often want to ignore the skeptics and go, oh, they just want to, they just want to torpedo something. Often skeptics are people who can be your strongest supporters, and they just feel like there, there are important things that need to be reflected in the change. And so by, getting, by engaging the skeptics, they can help you with the change. They also send a message that, that all the voices in the organization count, and they can help increase the success by pointing out flaws before you get too far. Okay, again, we're going to be taking uh, calls during the commercial break here. Uh, The number is 513. I'm sorry, the number is not 513. The number is 646 
595-4916. And we're going to be listening to San Rule number 38. Let's listen to my good friend Al Strauss. Al Strauss with Sandler Training. Talk to you about rule number 38. The problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. When people have heard this rule and thought about it a bit, if they've been in sales for more than a few months, they almost always say, well, that's obvious. I've had lots and lots of prospects that told me what they wanted, I showed them what they wanted, and they didn't buy it. So it seems that it would be obvious. The problem is most folks don't understand it and you get in the middle of the conversation and here's a prospect who's interested in something, you've got the something and you just show up. And what you really need to learn how to do is ask a bunch more questions because frankly in most cases the prospect doesn't even understand what the real problem is. And so if you ask three or four more questions about what they claim they need or are looking for or want you're going to discover that it morphs, it changes, sometimes dramatically. What they end up needing is perhaps even diametrically opposed to what they originally said they were looking for. So ask the questions, don't take the first thing they give you, dive down into the real issues, and you're going to have yourself a much better day selling to this prospect. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Lisa Hillenbrand, and we're talking about uh, some of the topics in her book, new book, Stragility. Uh, Lisa, when you, as a leader, attempt to change the direction that a, a company or an organization is going, uh, as a leader, a visionary, and Steve Jobs certainly was a visionary, mm-hmm. to use that example, uh, what, you, what do you think the first thing is that a leader should do to implement change? If the leader's coming in new to the organization, I think mm-hmm. the very first kind of 100 days program needs to be really understanding the organization and not just what's broken. Chances are if a new leader is brought in, they're brought in to fix something broken. But understanding what the strengths are in the organization and how you build on those strengths and go from strength to strength. So that's the first thing that I would do is not launch into some major change, but really seek to understand first. Interview, do in-depth interviews at all levels of the company, do a lot of asking, particularly the higher you are, the harder it is to get people to share reality with you. So you need to give people permission, make it comfortable. Look for people's pain points. Look for some things that may be simple to do and that may be simple to do initially and uh, as you as you identify what some bigger strategic things are. Mm-hmm. So when a, a new CEO comes into a company, uh, whether it's a turnaround CEO or just a, a normal change, uh, you think the first thing the CEO should do is set a 100-day timetable to get a good feel for, for the lay of the land before we change anything. Well, I think you you certainly need to do that. Now, there are situations where you simply don't have that time. There's a wonderful story in the book about David Novak, 
who was the brand new president of KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he came in and a week later, there was a franchise leader meeting and the franchisees were furious. Sales were down. This was their livelihood. They were mad. And they came in wanting to hate everything that, you know, the new guy came in. They wanted to download. And what he did was so important. The first thing he did was to get people on the same page. He reminded franchisees of their shared purpose and mission, why they were all in this business together. Mm-hmm. Then he took time to listen, and there was a lot of unhappiness. And the third thing he did was brilliant. Instead of getting defensive, he said, okay, we're going to do breakouts. This is like a day-long meeting. We're going to do breakouts in the afternoon. Go take a couple of hours in small breakouts. Imagine that you are me. Imagine that you are president of KFC. What would you change? So people went to the breakouts, and they came back, and they said, you know what? There are three things. The first one was improve the quality of the food. The second one was to launch new menu items. And the third one was to improve the training programs. And he said, and you know what? Those chances are those were the same things that he would have come up with with his senior leadership because it was brought up, because it came up from the franchisees. He said, we went from one moment from me or us versus them from me to we. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful example of stepping in as a new CEO and seeking to understand, really listening, and then um, um, asking people for what needs to change and then coming up with a joint plan. Rather than a top-down plan, coming up with a plan that really came from people on the front lines. So just as a point of curiosity, I wasn't there. Did he include all of the franchisees or just some? I don't know the answer to that, but he had a, a huge group. It was the annual franchisee leader meeting, very mm-hmm. big meeting. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said to him, oh, you want to just cancel the meeting? You're too new. They're pretty angry. And instead, he really used it as an opportunity to listen and learn and, and really set an example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to throw a real-world example at you uh, from the world of Sandler insiders. Uh, In Sandler, they have a a small group of franchisees called the Key Opinion Leaders, and uh, management throws everything in front of the Key Opinion Leaders instead of the entire group of franchisees. Perfect example. Perfect example. And in fact, that's true. Often when we talk about engaging people in large organizations, people go, oh, I can't possibly do that. There's so many people. You don't need to necessarily personally engage every person, you need to have some critical mass of those people. And getting, your example is a perfect example of getting opinion leaders who speak for people. And by the way, getting, giving those people a job of, of communicating uh, in their organizations, the smooth sailing port that I talked about did that, where they had a, they, they met with department leaders, opinion leaders, and then they gave those people the job of communicating the benefits of the change back in their organization. And if they didn't? Well, they weren't doing their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, uh, that can be the scary truth. But they felt really empowered as opposed to just telling people these people then were empowered to communicate. And because they were closer to each of their departments, they were able to do that in a way that was much more relevant. So you can imagine the person who managed the parking lot attendants was able to have a much more relevant discussion than the CEO who doesn't understand that job as well mm-hmm. would have been. Right, the parking lot attendant 
manager talks to all of the parking lot attendants. Right, and, and, and so it's a lot more relevant. They and the feedback the from the bottom parking lot attendant can come up to the manager of parking lots. Correct. And then up to the CEO of the port. Right. 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 So, so things like they put um, children's, up a children's play area in the lobby, that probably the CEO needed to look at, and mm-hmm. it came from, it was a parking lot attendant idea. Right. So it's got to be a bottom up yeah. as well as top down. Right. Right. Particularly something that's a capital investment like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about a, a factor called change fatigue. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, explain that factor to our audience? Oh, sure. That just is uh, people just becoming exhausted and people shutting out the change. You had an example earlier of people see change and they often wait and see if it's going to stick or the next thing comes around. People are just exhausted. And as I said, it, it typically comes from people trying to change too much, people not being brought into the change, don't understand it, or people don't uh, don't know what to do. I mean, it's fine to say we need to grow by 10%, but, but how is that going to grow by 10%? So you're the logistics manager and you're like, okay, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. So really translating it. And sales departments, that would be the most common thing I say I've seen is the the new compensation plan, which uh, it's a compensation plan I think should s- stick around for well more than a year, and they change it every six months. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a salesperson, you need to understand: Do you want me to get new customers? Do you want me to take my existing customers and have them buy more? Uh, are we in a situation where what you really want to focus on is don't lose anybody. Let's keep what we have until we get a new innovation. But you really need to understand much more than I just need 10% growth to what specifically do you want me to do? What kind of customers do you want me to go after and how? And the compensation plan should, should compensate that. for what management really wants done. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things we often see the measurement and the metrics are run counter to the change effort because no one's thought through, so how do you measure success of those uh, of, of the change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, in your book, uh, there's, a, there's a place in the book where you have a stoplight, red, yellow, and green. Uh-huh. I, I know the book is pl- printed in black and white, uh, but could you uh, illustrate for our, our listeners what the uh, yet relevant, yet Red, yellow, and green stoplight means? Sure. That's looking at people's receptiveness to change. And what we did in one company that we worked with is we literally asked people. So, for example, I'm meeting with you, Mike, and I'd say, okay, Mike, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change the compensation. We're going to do this, whatever. What do you think? And we'd actually ask them, are you kind of green, yellow, and red on this change, and why? And out of that, we got people to... um, be much more candid about where they were, and let's say that you were red or or yellow, we'd be able to ask the follow-up questions. Well, what would it take, Mike, to have you support this change? Well, I don't think it's going to work because I don't have the skills necessary. Oh, okay, well, if we put in a training program, would that work for you? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's going to work because I don't have enough people to do it. All right, well, what kind of work would have to go away in order to make it make I sense? I you broke the skeptics into two groups, the positive skeptics oh, and, yes. the, and the negative skeptics. I wish everyone could see the smile on your face just now. <laughs> we did. You know, there are some people, I think they're sometimes called your people, that, you know, Tigger and Eeyore in, um, okay. in the um, – 
in the, the poo books. You know, Tigger is always the optimist, and Eeyore always sees the negative. There are some people who are what we call negative skeptics, and they're people who just often for personal reasons, they're not happy, they don't want to be working, they don't like their job, they have problems, whatever. And there are probably more positive skeptics. And these are people who really wanted to work. In my mock interview with you, you actually wanted it to work. Of course you want to get more, you know, you're you're doing sales, you want more customers, of course you want it to work. You're just skeptical. You just see some barriers. And if we understand what those barriers are, probably between you and I, we can figure out how to get over those barriers. So we're both happy. You sound more, you're compensated better, you feel good about it, and uh, we get the change implemented. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, again, we're going to be taking uh, calls from our listeners on 646-595-4916. We'll be able to do that one more time in our next commercial break. Uh, I'm going to go back to the uh, telling and selling strategy about change. Since that uh, crosses over into uh, the into the into the world of selling an idea, mm-hmm. uh, uh, telling and selling uh, or spilling your candy in the lobby, as Sandler would say, uh, doesn't do much good unless accidentally you get a grand slam home run. Then it's a, an accident. Uh, what should the the CEO do specifically instead of telling and selling his change? Mm-hmm. The first place I'd start is creating this compelling case for change. So, for example, there was a manufacturing company that sourced things from many, many, many suppliers, and they found they had to reduce the number of suppliers. So instead of just telling people we have to have fewer suppliers, they actually created a display area where they put 400 different work gloves. And what they discovered is there were 400 suppliers of work gloves and they put one from each supplier out on the table and people got the message so very visual very visceral to say this is insane this has to stop um it was a great example of of creating a kind of case for change Another idea is to create a mantra. I talked about smooth sailing as a really nice way to encapsulate um, what that port was doing. When A.G. Lafley came to P&G, he had consumer's boss, and it really signaled it was the consumer that it was important. It was not the most important, not the stockholders, not the employees. It was focused on the consumer with the belief that if P&G's products delighted those consumers that all the other things would follow. Great results, happy employees, great result for shareholders, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take another commercial break here. Uh, the number again is 646-595-4916. We'll be back after these messages. When you hear about you a hear typical about sales, a typical training, sales program, training program, does it usually does involve usually a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. Typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. 
Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Finding power in reinforcement. This is Mike Roth with Sandler Training. Finding power in reinforcement. Are you tired of prospects saying, I want to think it over? Are you tired of being an unpaid consultant? Call me at 513-646-6523. On the web at rothconsulting.net. Imagine you just left your prospect's office and he now has your proposal, quote, or estimate. What do you suppose he's going to do with that valuable information that you just gave him for free? Call you tomorrow with an order? Get real. He's shopping it around to the competition. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates. I'm the most experienced sandless sales trainer in Cincinnati. I'm constantly amazed how salespeople operate. They believe a prospect asking for a proposal means the sale is as good as closed. Face it, trained prospects will turn you into an unpaid consultant. For over 15 years, we've been coaching, training, and challenging professionals who are 100% committed to long-term sales growth and profitability, no matter what it takes. If you're deadly serious about increasing sales, call me at 513-646-6523. Find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger. Or register now for our next open house, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Lisa Hillenbrand. We've been talking about her book, Stragility. And as we were reading through the book, we said there was a story about Macy's. Maybe you could tell our our listeners a a shorter recap of that story. I'd be happy to. Um, Yeah, Macy's is a company that's been a local success story for many years. It's also a CEO story. Terry Lundgren became CEO of Macy's. And the company was, is not growing at the time. And what had happened is they had scaled nationally, so they were doing standardized purchasing, standardized items, and in order to get economies of scale, which made sense. But unfortunately, in the process, they lost, lost touch with local buyers. He likes to tell the story of his early days at Macy's when he was a buyer in um, a wedding China. And when he, he knew the customers so well that he would take merchandise from one Macy's store where they weren't selling very well and move it to another. And he really wanted to get back to that kind of magic of Macy's where the store was adapted to local needs. So, for example, more colorful clothes and more summer clothes in Miami versus in New York, which is more black. And um, That reminds me of the Sears story where they would buy snowblowers from a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And they would uh, send every store for snowblowers. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the snowblowers didn't, for some funny reason, they did not sell in Florida. Go, go figure. So he wanted to get back to that, but he wanted to do it in a way that was much more scaled and was more doable. And so what he did is create a strategy with, with a whole team of people called the MOM strategy. And MOM, the first one stood for My Macy's, which was about assortment tailored to each location. The second, the O in MOM, was omnichannel. Customers are frequently, they'll go look at something on the web, they'll check it on their phone, they'll take a picture of it and send it to their girlfriend to see if it looks right. Um, so it was increasingly omnichannel, and we wanted to make it very easy for someone to enter wherever. And then finally, magic selling. Wherever people interacted with Macy's, that experience should be magical. So, for example, 
many retailers, if you buy it on the web and you come into their physical store and try to return it, they won't let you. At Macy's, you are welcome back. And they do. it's an opportunity. Often they found that that person who got the dress online didn't like it will actually buy more when they're back in the store. Mm-hmm. So it was a great example of... Um, understanding how to bring the magic back, building on core strengths that Macy's has always had, and um, adapting for the future, what we call the sense and shift, which is it's going to be more mobile, it's going to be more digital, and yet we have a historical strength in these in these big box stores. So how do we do all of those things and create an ecosystem that's going to delight our customers? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, you jogged a, a chord in my memory with the story. Uh, this this last December, I was out shopping for for a gift, uh, and uh, I thought I'd stop in the perfume department. And this uh, salesperson was absolutely, unbelievably helpful and good in finding the right product for me in the size I I was looking for, and helping me get checked out, helping me get the package wrapped. That's awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. She, she uh, was probably the best Macy's employee that in my entire life I've ever interfaced with. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I assume she understood your needs and she figured out how to, how to, how to work with them. Yeah. I heard one story with fine fragrance that guys are particularly nervous about buying uh, fine fragrance. And the best way to get a guy is with their significant other. So you ask the woman if she likes the smell, and if she likes it, it's a sale. Right, right. Yeah, so it's, a, it's another great example of how you customize, how you really understand what the end goal is and make it work for people. Yeah, but it was going to be a surprise. So, <laughs> so, so you couldn't bring your wife couldn't and have her stand. Did she like it? Yes, she did like it. Excellent. And, and it was Macy's, I hope. It was Macy's. <laughs> so that was good. And, and, and the sales the sales floor lady uh, uh, did a really positive testimony for Macy's uh, that made me want to come back uh, just to shop with her. Fantastic. Uh, I, I left feeling really valued as a customer. And there were so many other stores that I've gone into where... What a great story, and I'm sure you were not particularly comfortable standing at the perfume counter. Mm, not my favorite you're, place. You're probably not an expert on perfumes, and yeah. she she gave you the confidence and gave you your right choice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great uh, story. In, in, in the couple of minutes that we have left in the show, Lisa, maybe you can uh, tell our leaders out there, what are some of the signs uh, that leaders should look for uh, when a strategy goes off course? Sure. We often see people um, in action, great strategy, and then nothing happens. Often there's a blame game thing that happens where, oh, my department did their job, but that other department didn't. You see apathy. You see active resistance. You see people talking behind backs, a kind of downward spiral. So those are signs that you're, you're off track. And to get back on track, you need to go right back to these principles and say, are we on the right strategy? And chances are you are, but are there some shifts that need to happen? Mm-hmm. Have we ignored the politics? Are there pieces of the politics we didn't address, those skeptics that we talked about? Have we, t- have we talked to them? Have we listened to them? Have we inspired and engaged people that really understand what they're doing? Have we worked it through? And are we overwhelming people, or are we doing a, a reasonable pace of change that they can keep up with it? Mm-hmm. Or is it time for the Queen of Hearts to come on stage? Or for their heads. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) 
You know, I think often we blame the troops when the problem is our own. Often we say they aren't changing, and it's really we haven't made the case. We haven't made it easy for people to change. And so I would say in 90% of the cases, it should not be a they're doing something wrong. It's we need to take responsibility and figure out how we can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're... Uh, Someone else uh, wrote a book called Are Zombies Taking Over Your Company? (laughs) That's not a good sign. When you see zombies in the aisle, that's a sign that maybe you need to do something differently. One of the things your listeners might want to consider is we have workshops on all of these skills, and we can do a a day workshop, two-day workshop. We can do keynotes. I find that working with people takes the abstract and makes it more concrete. So we're happy to customize and develop workshops for companies, as I say, big or small, that really would help you incorporate these. Because strategy is a set of four skills, and those skills are learnable. And we strongly believe that if you learn those skills, that it's a huge competitive advantage, not just for today's change, but for every time you need to change. So do you work... uh in a consultative role as well as a, uh, a seminar role with companies? Yes, yes. I do, we do one-on-one coaching of managers. We do workshops. We do keynotes. So, so there's a great many ways. You can connect with us on stragilitychangemanagement.com. That's one word, stragilitychangemanagement.com. Start by buying the book. It's on Amazon. It's in all the major bookstores. Uh, Stragility, think strategic agility, and you'll find it, or Lisa Hillenbrand, Ellen Oster. Good. And if anyone wants to uh, call you or email you, is there a way to do that? Yes, right through stragilitychangemanagement.com. You can send us an email. It's easy to reach us. Good. Uh, I think we have time for uh, one more question. Um, If change is hard to do for most businesses, change is hard to do. Hard to change tracks, change directions. Mm -hmm. Changing direction is even more difficult. Change product lines. Uh, and I'm sure this comes into play when uh, brands are sold and brands are purchased on the other side of the table. Uh, how can a, a leader make the change happen faster? Mm-hmm. I would say the first thing to do is to go slow in the planning of it will make it go faster. Unfortunately, we tend to do just the opposite. We tend to get in very impatient. We tend to have a small group of people who go and take six months and develop elaborate plans and then expect the organization to change on a dime in a couple of weeks. Instead, I would advocate a much more inclusive, collaborative approach to building the change, building enthusiasm, testing the systems. And once you do that, it can happen very quickly. When people know that smooth sailing port, was very easy then because they had worked it through to each level and each job. Same thing with KFC. It was very clear what needed to happen, and they were able to very quickly get to those three actions and get those accomplished. In the island I talked about at the very beginning, same thing. It became very clear. So taking the time up front to build the change right, to be very inclusive as a leader, to really understand the points of view, and to build in that what's-in-it-for-me factor will allow you to go fast. Good. Lisa, I want to thank you for uh, being on the show today and uh, invite our listeners to uh, listen next week when we're going to have Bernie Cronin uh, talking about one of his books on acting and how that 
affects business development. Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This program this is the property of Property Training by Roth and Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513 753 9400.